Well, good morning. I missed you all. I, I really did. I was actually, you know, last Sunday as I was driving back, I was like, I wonder what they're doing right now, and I wonder if they actually miss me. I want to say a huge thank you to Ben for teaching last Sunday. I really appreciate that. Uh, apologies that Ben's sermon didn't make it up online. That was not because he was heretical. He is. But we still, we edited out all the profanity, so it's still going to end up there. And no, he didn't have that. But don't worry, we've got more Ben coming as well, too, for the summer, because I'm away a couple other times as well. So Ben will be uh, filling in for me. I really appreciate that. We're still back in uh, the book of First Corinthians. And um, just let me just recap. It's been a couple of weeks, what we, what we talked about uh, a while back. So one of the things that we talked about, about this idea of what it means to be a Christ follower today, there is very much a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And, and we know that, right? And again, Google has taught us that we have access to all the information in the world pretty much. What we don't have is the ability to filter whether the, the information is good or even true. But on top of that one layer, and again, over the last couple of years with the pandemic and everything that's gone on with politics, again, whether it's YouTube videos or TikToks or whatever it might be, there's a lot of misinformation. But the part that's also missing is this idea of experience, right? So one of the things we don't have as well, too, is how do we take knowledge and actually make it into something that's experiential? Right? And that only comes from trial and error. So I would say to you that there are a lot of people who have lots of knowledge today. And again, Google will help us with that or whatever your search engine might be. Um, but what doesn't help us to understand, what doesn't really teach us is what's actually true or not, what's actually wise. Um, we looked at, uh, this is chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul says something kind of really important. And the entire chapter is really Paul talking about the difference between wisdom in the biblical sense and knowledge in the earthly sense really comes down to the Holy Spirit, right? And what Paul is really trying to emphasize throughout the book, and remember I kind of gave this to you, but really what I wanted to emphasize for you in this was as Paul is trying to engage the church in Corinth, what he is trying to do is he's trying to, he's trying to teach them the gospel, but it's not about Paul's wisdom because remember, we know a little bit about Paul. He was taught by Gamaliel, one of the, most, the foremost rabbinic teachers. So he was a, 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 a Jewish teacher who had lots of Torah knowledge. But he didn't really rely upon that. Remember in chapter 2, that one phrase that really kind of, I, I really try to emphasize, where Paul says, I forgot everything except Jesus. Now that is a statement that I think the Western church needs to uh, reacquaint themselves with, that we need to almost forget methodology, we need to forget almost, dare I say, sometimes denominational, and really ask ourselves the question about what, what, it, what would Christ have of us. And, and what we looked through, when we went through this whole part here, when we looked through chapter 3 there, I mean, sorry, chapter 2, what we really saw is this was what Paul's Corinth engagement was. This is how Paul tried to, as much as possible, engage the city of Corinth. Now, before we jump into where we want to go today, I just want to recap one more thing about you. These are the four things that Corinth is struggling with. And the reason I want you to, rem to remind you about that, because in chapter 3 of what we're going to be today, this is uh, two of these are going to come up. So remember I said to you, Corinth is sensual. Remember, I gave you the background of the church of Corinth, right? So remember, the largest temple to Aphrodite in the entire Roman Empire. Remember, ancient Corinth is equivalent to Las Vegas. 
right? Prostitution, alcohol, um, again, a very sensual culture, which again is us today. Corinth is immature. Remember, when Paul writes First and Second Corinthians, Corinth has only been in establishment, depending on which commentator you read, between three and four years. So again, not a lot of time there. The second thing, is, uh, the third thing is Corinth is struggling with transformation. And that's where we're going to be sending you on, uh, on this morning. And also, Corinth is trying to blend the gospel and culture. So as, as Corinth is going out there trying to um, talk about this Jesus thing to other people, there is this temptation, and we don't maybe talk about this openly, but when you're talking to your friends, to your family, to your coworker, when they say stuff like, do you really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale? That's an opportunity to go, okay, first of all, the Bible doesn't say whale, and second of all, the Bible doesn't say swallow. Okay, so let's just talk about that. But that's, that's a whole different conversation. But oftentimes what we hear today is people ask us these questions like, do you really believe this? Because isn't the Bible thousands of years old? And the answer is yes. So how can a document that's thousands of years old still apply to a postmodern culture? And again, that's a great conversation. Unfortunately, most Christians are like, well, not so much anymore. Well, this part, maybe not that part. And this thing, maybe not that thing. So we have this whole, 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 whole issue. Well, the church in Corinth was actually struggling this as well. Before we jump into uh, chapter 3 this morning, I just want to uh, share with you an article I came across by, um, by Nato Lagidis, and the article title was Signs of Spiritual Immaturity. Now, in the article, they give 12. I'm not going to share all 12. You're welcome. But I'm, I'm going to just highlight a couple because I think these are actually kind of important because Paul is going to start off the chapter. Now, for this morning, we're going to actually go not quickly, but chapter 3, we're not going to spend too much time on chapter 3, and you'll see why in a second, because Paul is going to come through and repetitively keep bringing us back to what verse 1 is, right? So chapter 3, we're just going to kind of do an overview and really kind of drill down on what Paul talks about. So here are some characteristics that NATO really brings out, and I think uh, that she is absolutely correct. So the first sign of a spiritually immature Christian is you get, you quickly get angry and easily fall into arguments, I think that's actually really kind of interesting because I was thinking about this in regards to, and again, the last three, four years, okay, three years as far as being a Christ follower, have been very tumultuous to say the least, right? But what's interesting in, whether it's social media, whether it's Twitter, whether it's blogs, whether it's in the media, this is a trap that I think Christians have fallen into quite readily. Right? We are arguing about the wrong things. We are emphasizing what is not necessarily biblical as opposed to preferential. The second thing she says is that you find it difficult to forgive people. Um, uh, last Two weeks ago, I was at a camp, and I spoke on, uh, again, you don't have to remember the series, but the series I did back in February called The Art of Forgiveness. And what I didn't know about the camp, and the funny thing about it is whenever I pray about what I want to speak at a camp, I felt the spirit kind of place this in my, into my heart, and you always know it's a spirit because I don't want to do it. Because I actually had a cooler topic I wanted to do. I had, a, I had a more fun topic. But I had really felt that the spirit had said, teach on this. I'm like, okay, fine, right? I, I may be stubborn, but I do give in. What I didn't know about this camp was, is that the last three, four months before that, there was a lot of infighting happening at the camp, where people who have cottages right next to each other were not talking. And these are not... 
uh, young Christians, these are Christians who have been Christians for like 40, 50 years, right? I was, I was, uh, these are one of the few adult camps I get. I, get. I tend to get to speak at a lot of youth camps, but this was one of the adult camps that I get to do. And so it had gotten really, really toxic to the point where people who had been on the campground have cottages next to each other or across from each other for 20 years were no longer talking. And you guys know how much I like to talk. That, that should not be any surprise to you. I kid you not, by the end of this week of this camp, I didn't want to talk at all. Because everywhere I went, people were stopping me trying to negotiate forgiveness. I, so uh, I tried to, every day, I tried to go for a 20-kilometer bike ride. I'm coming back. I got my AirPods in. I got my, my Apple Watch happening. Tell me when it ends. Literally, the 70-year-old man jumps out and goes like this, Pastor! And I'm like, I hit the brakes. I'm like, what the crap? Like, what? What? Now, yesterday, Pastor, you sit there. I'm like, oh, come on, people. Everywhere I went over this camp, everyone wanted to talk about forgiveness because it was like they had never thought about the deeper implications of this topic. The point simply was, is that one of the ways we really understand whether we are a mature or immature Christian is when we nurse hurts and wrongs. And we keep those very close to us and we have the inability to release them in forgiveness. And one of the things I said in that series it was forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves. Because, again, forgiveness isn't about reconciliation with the person has wronged us. isn't about justice being done in the event. None of that will take place necessarily. But that's not what forgiveness is, at least a biblical understanding of forgiveness. She says this, you find it difficult to accept criticism or even gentle correction. Oh, sweet merciful, I can't tell you how much within the church we've become so sensitive to any kind of sense of like, hey, you know, maybe perhaps this isn't the best way to approach this. What? Right? We use offense or being offensive uh, or being offended as a way of kind of staying within our immaturity. Um, you're not using your spiritual talents. Spectator Christianity is all the rage right now. This is why churches are entertainment-driven or attractional, right? Again, it doesn't matter whether the slides are lining up with what the singers are saying. It, that doesn't matter. We've said this before at UCC. Whether there's a wrong note or whether the things don't line up or I say something stupid, which, again, can happen, the spirit isn't a timid bunny who's going to run away, right? That's not authentic community. Um, you're not interested in growing spiritually, right? We're just, you're, just, you're just not interested in that. And that, again, that is part of it as well, too. You have a hard time asking for help, right? Like, like spiritual immaturity says, I'm struggling with this, but I'm just going to be able to solve this on my own. That's not what the Bible says. And finally, you're constantly seeking pleasure, right? Pleasure, hedonism is the core tenet and philosophy of Western culture. The unfortunate aspect of this, this has infiltrated itself into the Western church, and this is where we are at. So the question we're going to ask this morning, um, and we're going to ask it a few times, is where are you on your spiritual journey? So remember I've said to you that whenever you walk into a mall or walk into a place you don't know, the first thing you look for is a map. But the most important part of the map isn't your destination or what store you want to go to. The most important part of a map is where am I in, in connection with this map? And when it comes to this idea of our spiritual maturity, what we have to ask ourselves and what we're going to ask ourselves this morning is, and maybe I can be a little bit more specific about this, is what stage are you in your spiritual development? 
Did you know that Christianity had stages of development? And did you also know that there are some markers of where you are in those stages of development? So this morning's conversation will either be fun or awkward. And hopefully, if I do it correctly, it'll be both. So we're going to ask ourselves a question. So um, if you have your Bibles or your digital devices, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, remember I said to you that it's not my intent to go chapter by chapter, but in the first few chapters, Paul is going to take an idea and he's going to go chapter by chapter, so we're going to go that way as well. Two weeks from now, we're going to do a topical one and a topic that pops up all over 1 Corinthians, and we're going to summarize it in, in a two-week-from-now topic. And just so you know, it's going to be a bit of a doozy. And I don't know if it's going to make it online. So uh, just, to, just, to give you, just to give you that heads up. Be- Anyways, okay. So chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, a couple of things that Paul's going to say. And again, verse 1 is going to introduce the topic for all of what Paul's going to say. And he's going to keep coming back to it in different ways. This is why we're not going to spend too much time on, uh, on this chapter. So chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 says this. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now, D.A. Carson's commentary on this is this. At some point, the number of years they have been Christians leads you to expect something like mature behavior from them, but they prove disappointing. So we know that uh, Corinth has only been a church for about three years. How mature would you expect to be after three years of spiritual development? I heard not. I would say that there might be more than not, but you know, we, we'll, we'll have that conversation. Now, a quick note, and I don't always try to go back into the Greek, but this is going to be important because this is going to be a theme throughout the New Testament. The, the word that Paul uses for infants is, is a Greek word called nepios. And nepios means this, refers to a person who what? lacks experience, is untried or ignorant or simple-minded. Now, this is uh, this is a nice way of saying, you know, like, have you lost your minds or had you even know where your minds are, right? It's kind of like Stanley from The Office. Boy, have you lost your mind because I will help you find it. And for those of you who have not watched The Office, what is wrong with you? Okay, nepios is a very particular word because it's not simply about age. One of the things I hope you'll understand by the time we get to the end of this topic, age does not equal immaturity or maturity. This is very, very important, and and Paul will hammer this home in different ways throughout the part of it. The second thing that Paul is going to talk about, this idea of worldly. In your translation, now remember, I use NLT, the New Living Translation, but in some translations, the word is flesh, right? And the word flesh is a Greek word called sarkinos, Sarkinos means this, can also refer to the moral, ethical aspect of human nature in its base behavior. Again, worldly isn't about living in the world. One of the greatest misunderstandings the, the Western church has, has, has kind of fallen into, and there's reasons for this, kind of comes down from this Greek philosopher Plato. And not Plato that you play with, but Plato. And Plato had this idea of separating what was in the world and what was in the spirit. Even the phrase secular comes from the Latin phrase secularoso, which actually denoted anything outside of a monastery. So in the Middle Ages, a monk would say, go to the secular market, which was considered outside of the monastery. Christians have adopted this, 
And when they adopted this, what they've done is they've created two uh, ways of looking at the world. Secular. And again, because I am a child of the 80s. Not that I was born in the 80s. I'm a little bit older than that. But in the 80s, this is when Christian music first kind of blew up. Right? Before the 80s, Christian music was gospel. And that was a pretty, well, in hymns and, and, and gospel. Right? But in the 80s, all of a sudden, there's this, this, this genre of music came up, and it was something like this. It was basically replacement therapy. And what I mean by replacement therapy is, oh, you like this artist? Well, have you heard? Oh, you like this music? Well, have you heard? Right? And I, I remember one, one speaker said, hey, how many of you like, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself here, how many of you like LL Cool J? I did. Still do. Um, he goes, if you do, then you'll love Lecrae. It was kind of like this, kind of like, here's a secular thing you shouldn't be listening to, and here's a Christian one you should be listening to, right? Now, Paul is not going to use that at all, because that's not how he defines it. He defines it basically this idea of a moral, moral, ethical way of looking at it. Now, what's important with this is the same word nepios Paul uses in different ways well, too. And this is kind of important here. Paul, Paul uses this. When Israel was in her infancy, spiritually speaking, remember we went through the book of Exodus and we talked about how Israel had forgotten who Yahweh was. And a lot of the book of Exodus was a reintroduction of Yahweh to Israel, right? To help them to remember the God that they serve. Well, they were given the law on Mount Sinai. Remember the, the, the book of Exodus and the book of Genesis is basically... How do people who serve God live that out without really clear guidelines on what that looks like? So many people said to me, and atheists and others have said to me, well, in the book of Genesis, there's horrible things that happen. And my, my response is, of course there is. Because there was no rules on what, what, what decency and human behavior was meant to look like. That didn't come towards the end of the book of Exodus. And of course, really hashed out in Leviticus and, and, and Deuteronomy. Now, this is important. The Jewish people were subjected for 1,500 years. Paul referred to, that at, 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 to her at that stage as nepios. What Paul is saying here is people under the law are still infants. Why is this important? Because doing the right thing does not mean you're mature. See, the church has kind of fooled itself by saying behavior modification is maturity. It is not. Because behavioral modification still can hide something more darker and sinister that's, that lives on the inside. So the word nepios is a part of that. So think of it like being in kindergarten, learning your ABCs. One thing is certain. According to Paul, being under the law is, is definitely is not spiritual maturity. And so that's really important. So please hear me very clearly. Behavior is important. But remember, belief plus behavior is what God expects of us, right? It's not just simply about what you do, but it's what you believe and what you think, right? Remember I said to you um, at the very beginning of this Corinth series, the question I asked you is, do you actually think like a Christian? And that's not an actual small statement because Christianity, as I've said this to you before, it begins in the mind. Okay, uh, verses 5 to 9. Look what Paul says. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Now, a couple of things here. Three concepts that Paul is going to say, and again, he expands this in other letters, but I just want to give it to you simply. The first one is this idea of planted. 
I would say to you that planting the gospel is what I would say is the first authentic encounter or multiple encounters with the gospel. Now, here's why I use the word authentic and why it's underlined. Oftentimes, people will say that I went to church or someone talked to me about God, but that's not an authentic experience of the gospel because it's, it's not about relationship. It's not really about a true alignment of what God expects of us. So when we talk about this idea of planted, what I really want you to understand is that when Paul is saying planted, he's not just saying, you know, I spoke the gospel. I had a very un- uncomfortable conversation with uh, a street preacher uh, a couple years back. Now, however you, however you understand street preachers, but a street preacher for me is an individual who stands in the corner in, 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 in the public square and just, and just preaches. Now, again, it could be argued that that's what I'm doing right now, except for the fact that all of you were invited as opposed to uh, me kind of walking along as you're going about your daily business. And again, it's up to you. But I don't think that's an authentic encountering with the gospel because I don't think it really has a relational aspect to it, which is, I think is important to the gospel. So when Paul says, I planted, it's not just saying, hey, I went to the synagogue and preached, or I went to the public square and preached. That's not authentic in the sense of saying, now I want to have a dialogue with you. Monologue is not authentic. Dialogue is authentic. The second part is watered. And, and this one's a bit more complicated, but let me explain. The open, encouraging, experiencing, consistent practicing of spiritual disciplines and transformation. The reason there's lots of slashes in there because I couldn't just, I couldn't figure out how to just condense it down to a couple of words. Because it's not just simply about watering. Watering is this idea of growth, right? You will not grow as a Christ follower if you do not have aspects of what it means to have spiritual disciplines, community, all these great things the Bible talks about. You will not grow. Growth is causing growth. The word that Paul uses for growth is axano. Now, what's really important about the word axano is in the Greek, it's called the imperfect tense. Now, imperfect tense means repetitive, again and again and again. So growth isn't just like, hey, I'm growing. Growth is, hey, I'm, oh, hey, oh, right? It's, 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 it's more of an up and down. And the reason why that's important is because sometimes there can be a misunderstanding of growth in Christianity. Because growth in Christianity is like the steady kind of like rocket ship to heaven. If we think of Christianity properly, we realize something. There are times in your life where you feel so close to God. And there's times in your life where you feel as dry as, well, what, what you know, my grass has felt over the last couple of weeks. Right? You just, you just don't feel it. Whether you understand it or not, this is part of growth. This is the constant growth that God wants to give to us. Okay, verses 10 to 15. Two concepts that come out of here. In verse 11, Paul says this, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 13, the second part, says this, "It It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Two concepts here two tensions here. One is that Paul sees Jesus as the only foundation. Whatever the church, whatever church is, its primary function is of creating environments for maturation and development. See, one of the reasons why Western Christianity is on this really kind of there's a great deal of reevaluation of what's taking place within church today. And part of our development as a, as a church plant, and again, we're eight years, eight years this September, 
Where's Tal? She knows these things. Is it eight years in September? I think it's eight. Yes. Okay, thank Caleb. Eight years to September, UCC, we planted it eight years ago. In that time, we are still trying, not still trying, but we are, we are still wrestling with what we are as a community. Some things we've figured out, like we like small, right? People over programs, authenticity over entertainment, right? Those are part of our core values. But there's other parts of us we're still trying to wrestle, trying to figure it out. Now, whatever UCC is, I want it to be a partner with the Holy Spirit as opposed to telling the Holy Spirit what to do. Right? I've said this to you before. Oftentimes, pastors have a great idea and start doing something and ask the Holy Spirit to bless it. Now, it can happen or it cannot happen. I would prefer to find out where the Holy Spirit's working and partner with the Holy Spirit because that's just easier. Right? Let's just, let's just cut the middleman out, which is me, and let's just go to what the Holy Spirit's doing. So whatever the church is, it is meant to be a partnership for maturation and development. This is why, this is why I remember back in week one, I told you that only 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview. And again, that number should shock and horrify you, but as a pastor, it does not shock or horrify me because I talk with other pastors. I had a conversation with a pastor on my week away who was an individual, I don't want to, I don't want to call them out, but it was an individual who was a pastor of a church close by. And they, were, they, after our conversation, I just realized something about their philosophy of the church. That it wasn't about the Bible or the gospel or what God's trying to reveal to us, but it's more about cultural accommodation and, 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 and inclusivity amongst, anyways, all that kind of great language. Hi. Okay. But the second tension is this, and this is important. Not all effort is equal. Not all effort is authentic. Whatever Christianity is supposed to be as well, we can go through the motions, but that doesn't mean actually something's taking place. Okay, almost done here for the chapter summary. Don't get too excited. Verses 18 to 23. Paul says a couple of things here. He says this, So don't boast about following a particular human leader, for everything belongs to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to you. It's a beautiful idea, but look what he's trying to unpack here. The word boasting he uses in the Greek says this, means to boast over privilege or possession. Boasting is a wedge posture. Here's what I mean by wedge posture. One of the things I've tried to do with UCC, one of the things I've always tried to do with my own teaching as a pastor, is not try to tell you that whatever UCC is, we are the hope of Waterloo Region. We are not. Right? Whenever we started UCC eight years ago, there is a temptation as a church plant to, <laughs> to overcommit to what we are. Right? It's like, we're here to, God, to, to bring the gospel to Waterloo. Well, the beautiful news is there's lots of churches who are doing that. We're just one of them. And there isn't anything even more special about us, maybe spicy, but nothing more special about us that's going to do that. Right? So when I say boasting, it's like people saying, well, my church or my pastor or this celebrity pastor or this YouTube channel or this Twitter, you know, account or this. It's like we're boasting over the wrong thing. Right? Because look at the second part. Belonging. If we belong to Christ, then every person is part of our transformation process. So it doesn't matter who the celebrity is. It doesn't matter who the blogger is. It doesn't matter any of these things. Look what Paul says. Everything belongs to you, and you belong to Christ. And if we have that tension in our minds, then we really have the proper way that Paul wants to do it. Now, 
that's chapter three in an overview. Let me just, uh, Dr. Uh, Kim Riddlebarger uh, says this about this uh, chapter. This immature and fleshly behavior, characteristics of non-Christians, manifests itself in the following behavior. There are factions forming in the church. That doesn't sound like us today at all. Um, with two of the most significant ones, um, apparently centered around Paul and his close associate, Paulos. The members of these factions were now openly quarreling with each other and openly, and apparently each group was jealous, envious of the other. This divisive behavior, Paul says, is that of mere men, i.e., that of people who conform themselves to the wisdom of this world, not the wisdom of God manifests in the cross. Instead of focusing upon God and his purposes made manifest in the preaching of Christ crucified, the Corinthians are focusing upon their personal and selfish agendas. And this kind of thing is, not, is nothing but a manifestation of the flesh. Again, lots of words. Simply put, when we think about whatever we think about with Christianity, is it, is it Christ's agenda or is it our agenda? Now, let's go back to the original question. What stage are you in spiritual development? So when I kind of studied this, what's interesting is I came across one Christian author who said there are 12 stages of Christian development. Perhaps. Another one said that there are eight ones. Well, I came across an individual, and I'll, I'll reveal who that individual is in a second, who basically broke it down to three, which I think is a little easier. But what I like about how they broke it down is their three stages are really kind of based upon the Bible, which, you know, I think is a good place to start. So the first stage, they would say, is a baby or infant, the nepios, and we'll talk about that in a second. The second stage is of youth, and the third stage is of an adult. Now, where I got this from is an individual called St. Basil of Caesarea. This is an individual who was around the 3rd century. Now, I tend to like the anti-Nicene fathers, anything as before 305, before Constantine takes over the church. But uh, St. Basil is actually a really good, uh, because he still has that kind of um, vitality of the early church. So I, I, I like that. Now, he was around the, three, uh, the, the 4th century. And he has an entire document on, on the stages of spiritual development. Now, this is what he says. We have been taught in many passages of scripture that, one, there is, there is one state of the soul which is like a child, two, another which is like a man in his prime, and three, another which is like a man who's already old and venerable. And again, it's, it's, it's archaic language, but that's the language he's using. Now look what he says here, and this is really important, and this is one of the mistakes I made at UCC. It is possible to be 70, 70 years of age and a spiritual baby. It is possible to be 30 years of age and a spiritual elder. This is really important because there are adults in our church who we think of themselves as spiritually mature, but they are not. This is why when Paul says to Timothy, don't let envy look down upon your youth. Why? Because Paul is recognizing in Timothy that there's a spiritual maturity that's not evident amongst adults. This is one of the things I love about UCC. When I, when I was away at the camp and I said to everybody, hey, just so you know, my church is 65% university students. Now, that number fluctuates, and I don't know what it's going to be. And I, you know, I've never done a formal survey, but that's just off the top of my head. And they're like, really? How does that work? I'm like, I don't even know how that works, right? But the point is, what I love about being, so you guys know that I was a youth pastor for 20 years, 20 plus years. What I've I found within youth ministry is there's youth and young adults who are definitely way more mature for their age than some of the adults. 
So I don't look at youth ministry and going, well, I'm just here to babysit so-and-so. But what I did realize very early on, and one of the mistakes I made at UCC was assuming that just because you had been in the church for 20 years, you ought to know better. That's not the case, much to my surprise. And so what St. Basil is saying is actually kind of important. And his, his text for this is from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. It says this, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So now, St. Basil is going to define to us what a child or what a baby looks like. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to use the word nepios, or baby, in the New Testament, and he's going to draw a couple of conclusions. First thing he's going to say is, babies are immature and self-centered. By the way, if you go to a new mom and you look at their baby, you go, whoa, what a lovely baby. They're immature and self-centered. That's not a good way to start the conversation, okay? But what St. What Basil is trying to say is these are some characteristics of baby Christians. But again, and again, he gets this from uh, 1 Corinthians. But I, brothers and sisters, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as a people of flesh, as infants, nepios in Christ. Second thing he says about babies, he says this, babies are ignorant and unskilled. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, Hebrews 5.13. He says this, babies are unstable and impressionable. That we may no longer be children, nepios, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Ephesians 4.14. Babies need milk. Like newborn infants, brephos, uh, long for the pure spiritual milk that, by the way, you may grow into salvation. Now, here's why I want to give you a definition of what spiritual milk is. Spiritual milk, in my opinion, is the basic and strongest of emotions. When you first become a Christ follower, there is there are aspects of it that are just you are drawn to, right? And I would say, just in general, the three ones are love, grace, and forgiveness. I think that the, t- the tipping point for us to become Christ followers, and I've, I've said this before and I'll just remind you again, is there has to come a point in our lives where we surrender. Now, I want to tell you something. I don't believe that anybody fully surrenders their entire life to God when they first become a Christ follower because I don't believe any baby Christian fully understands that implication. Right? Just like, so I worked with addictions and 12-step programs for many, many, many years. Every addict who starts the, the, the road to sobriety knows what they're starting off to but doesn't know the implications of that. And the goal of 12-step programs is to walk them through with community and a sponsor through the entire process, a lifelong process of sobriety. Likewise, a baby Christian is also going to say, yes, I love God, yes, I'm forgiven, yes, I accept all that, but they don't understand the implications of what that means. Fun fact, these are the individuals who are really active on social media. These are the individuals who have become the spokespeople for Western Christianity today. You know how I know this? When you start arguing about vaccinations over the cross you are missing the point. If you start arguing about politics over the gospel and the kingdom of heaven, you are absolutely missing the point. 
If you are arguing about race and gender over, over what Christ is and the Galatians passage, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. If you've forgotten that, you're absolutely missing the point. I have said this before and I will say it again. If every Christian disappeared off social media, I think that would be the best thing for the gospel. Oh, I know, right? How could that even be possible? You know, there was a point. Okay, okay, this is just a confession, and I'm trying to be as, as, as honest with you. Do you remember back in the pandemic when you first heard of TikTok? I do, because everyone's bored. We all watched the Tiger King for Pete's sake. We had nothing to do with our time, right? We had nothing going on. Well, I remember looking at this TikTok app, and the question I asked myself, because I heard uh, another pastor on social media said, oh, you pastors need to get TikTok. I didn't know what this was, so of course, I downloaded the app. I started looking through it, just so you know, I don't have any TikToks on there, so don't worry, don't freak out. But I was looking at it going, is this, is this a tool, you know, that, that we as a church could use? And the good news was, I'm like, no. <laughs> but I saw some pastors who were on there trying to get, you know, communicate. And again, fine, fine. I had a very interesting conversation with somebody literally three weeks ago about the role of social media in the gospel. And I said that, that social media is an inauthentic way of portraying an individual and not really getting to the heart of the gospel because social media is all about your hair is perfect, you know how to take your picture so that you hide anything you don't want people to see, right? It, 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 it's curating the best possible image. Well, the gospel properly understood is not just our best, but it's also our worst, right? And so these are the individuals that seem to be kind of being the spearheaded and these are the individuals that are easy to pick off in the secular like you know commentators and all that why because all of these things are true right i when a celebrity actor musician whatever athlete declares their christianity becomes a christ follower what's the first thing that happens they are booked at every conference they are put out there as this new Christian, not realizing, first of all, A, it may not take, and B, the discipleship that's necessary for maturity is, is a lifelong process. One, one such example is Anne Rice. Many of you know who Anne Rice, well, some of you know Anne Rice. Anne Rice wrote the uh, Vampire Chronicles. Again, before, you know, the, uh, what's that, uh, uh, those, those uh, you know, uh, Twilight, that's it. I was trying to think of a, of, 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 a, of a gentle way of saying effeminate vampires, but I couldn't think of it, right? Anne Rice, it was, it was, I remember this taking place. Anne Rice puts out there that she has become a Christ follower, and Christianity goes nuts, right? Because, again, this woman put a lot of a genre of, 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 of fiction that was very popular but also very not... And, and, and Anne Rice, to her, to her credit, wrote a book, a historical, well, not a fictional way of, of looking at the life of Jesus and, and all that. But guess what? About a couple of years later, Anne Rice realizes something. That the cross, it, it really asks for every aspect of your life. There isn't parts of your life you're allowed to set aside. And then she declares a couple of years later, not a Christian anymore. And, of course, we Christians are like, oh, Baby. She's a baby Christian. She needs to be discipled. She needs to be protected from herself and from everything else. Like, like honestly, we should have, we should have this, 
We should have a celebrity Christian crew coming up like, hey, great. I'm glad you are a Christ follower. Welcome to the family of Christ. We are so happy to have you. Don't tell anybody, man. And if you really love Jesus, quit, quit, quit whatever you do. And let's take you and let's disciple you over the next five years. And then five years from now, then you can tell people you're a Christian. Again, I know, controversial. You get it, right? But if we understand what St. Basil of Caesarea is saying, baby Christians are a danger to themselves and a danger to others because, again, immature, self-centered, ignorant, unskilled, unstable, impressionable, and they need milk. All right? Now let's take a look at youth because it doesn't get any better. Here we go. St. Basil says this, That person is young in soul who is perfectly taught in all branches of virtue, he who is fervent in spirit, who is eager for the practice of piety, and who, being in his prime, is vigorous in every way for the performance of good works. Yeah, I didn't understand whole, what he's saying there as well, too. But what he really, the, the scripture he references is 1 John. I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts, and you have won your battle with the evil one. Titus chapter 2, verse 6 to 7. In the same way, encourage the young men, young women, young people to live wisely. And you yourself must be example them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Two concepts for the youth. One is, by the time you get to the youth part of your spiritual development, you're starting to kind of wrestle with the word of God. You're starting to wrestle with scripture, right? Secondly, though, your behaviors are starting to change as well. But, as St. Basil tells us, there's still dangers here, right? St. Basil tells us this. Youth tend to have more zeal than wisdom. That's a no-duh, but you get it, right? Youth tend to act like know-it-alls. That's not anybody that we know. Youth tend to be naive when interacting with others in the body. Pause here for a second. This is really important. I don't know if I told you this story or not, but a number of years ago, I was at a church, and this guy gets up, and he's a guest speaker. You always know a pastor, bring, when they bring a guest speaker in, the guest speaker says things the pastor always wanted to say, but is not going to say, so they bring a guest speaker in to say the stuff that we don't want to say. Guest speaker gets up and says this, good morning, I'm here to you know, speak to you as a church. Now, according to the Bible, 70% of you are, are disciples of Jesus who are trying to figure out what it means to be a Christ follower. 10% of you here this morning are those who are still not sure about Jesus, are still struggling with that. You're welcome here this morning. But the Bible tells us there's still a 20%. And the Bible tells us that 20% of you are devils. That you're planted here this morning by the enemy to disrupt the kingdom of God. And to you 20% I want to speak to this morning. I'm like, oh, this is great. This is awesome. <laughs> now, the reason I think it's funny and what's interesting is, is... Youth tend to be naive. Like sometimes we think people in the church want what we want. That's not always the case. Sometimes we think that people in the church have the same perspectives as we have. They do not. And so what has to happen with youth is you need to understand what is true and what are people's preferences. We oftentimes take our preferences and make that to be true. Spiritual youth is about beginning to put into practice the habits of holiness, the spiritual disciplines, and putting into practice their learning. Knowledge plus practice equals wisdom. Now let's get to the adults. That's right. It's raining, people. Get closer. <coughs> what guitar? Are we good? Are we settled? Are we, are we, are we good? All right. Good.
All right. St. Basil says this about adults. But that person is old and vulnerable in soul. Just a, just a fun fact. Third century Rome, average lifespan, and yes, I looked this up, 38. In soul has been perfected in prudence. Such was Daniel, while young in body, showed that the honor which intelligence obtains is more respectable than every gray hair. Therefore, the men who are full of wicked days said to him, Come sit among us, tell us, for God has given you the right of venerable elder. What does John say? I'm writing to you who are mature, fathers, in faith, because you know, what's the word he uses for no? Experience, which is failures and victories in Christ. Look what St. Basil says about adults. John refers to mature Christians as parents rather than adults. His address to fathers reflect the call to those who are mature enough to training others in Christian living. Here's some characteristics he gives. Parents are stable and reliable. Not your parents, spiritual parents. Are we clear? Your parents may not be stable and reliable, but spiritual parents are supposed to be. Parents are knowledgeable and able to teach others. Parents are discerning. Parents are wise and have control of their passions. This is what St. Basil of Caesarea says are the characteristics. Now, remember this. Baby, youth, parent. Where are you on the spectrum? Now, just to be clear here, parent is maturity. What's maturity? According to the Bible, maturity is Christ-likeness. So I was thinking to myself, what are some characteristics I can give you of maturity? One, are you serving other people? And just so you know, family members and friends don't count. I've said this to you before, and I'll say it again. What does Jesus say? What good is it if you love those who love you? Don't the pagans do that? Do you love those who hate you? Are you living a life of generosity? What does generosity look like? Well, at UCC, we define generosity in three ways. Time, talent, and treasure. Are you taking those three parts of your life and giving them away for the betterment of others? The other thing I would say about Christ-likeness as well is this idea of fruitfulness, right? What is fruitfulness? Fruitfulness is reproduction. It is it is planting into other people what God has given in you. That's what maturity looks like. Now, I left something out in chapter 3. And those of you who have memorized 1 Corinthians, and you know who you are, there's a verse that was missing because I realized that St. Basil missed stage 4. Stage 4 is a very important stage. I want to reveal that with the scripture that I, de- I left out on purpose. In the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul puts this phrase here. And the funny thing about this phrase, it actually doesn't even really make a lot of sense unless you understand what Paul is trying to say. And look what he says. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst? You know this passage, right? If anyone destroy God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. I want to introduce to you stage four. So I said to you that there's babies, 
there's youth, and then there's adults. Well, I want to show you, and I, I want to give credit to Chris Erdman, because he's the one who brought this up, and I thought this is really important. The fourth stage is the second awakening. This is what Chris Erdman said. And again, I want to give full credit. I never thought about this, but as soon as he said it, it was like an aha moment in my heart. He says this, A mature and involved Christian once came to me privately and asked, Isn't there more to the Christian life than this? Here was an elder, active in ministry, highly competent at work, well-established and respected, but who came to a point where all these things tasted like straw, felt empty, no longer life-giving. Do you know there is going to come a time in your spiritual life where you are going to be bored of Christianity? And perhaps you're at that stage right now. There's going to come a time where you're going through the motions and the motions aren't connecting with the heart. And you're going to ask the question, isn't there more? Isn't there more than this? Look what he says. That journey leads from first awakening, our, our, when we decide to become a Christ follower, through believing and belonging, these are his stages, and to service and leadership. But it doesn't end there. There comes a point when the Holy Spirit invites a disciple to turn inward again in order to awaken to the depths of interior intimacy with Holy Trinity. It's a stage of discovering God all over again. And did you know that no matter what stage you're in, baby, youth, or adult, you'll go through this? And do you know why this connected with me? Because I didn't realize it, but I do this. I don't know. Uh, see, my filters are kicking in, but I'm not going to listen to them this time. Every September, I don't know if you knew, you didn't know this, I've never told anybody this before. Every September is kind of the start of a, of, 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 a, of a church year. But there's a prayer I pray towards the end of August. <clears throat> I ask that God would help me to fall in love with my church again. Because I don't, I don't know if you realize this, but by the end of August, I'm kind of burnt out over the last year. And that unless I fall in love again, I don't even want to, like, like, teaching for me, teaching is my primary function. You guys know this. But there comes a point in my, in my teaching career where I look at the scriptures and I look at the Bible, I think about God, and I'm like, meh. I'm just trying to be honest with you. So there's a prayer that I've prayed since the very beginning of my, of my, of my professional Christianity, my being a pastor, is that I say this at the end of August, Lord, Please help me to fall in love. As a matter of fact, I knew that I was leaving my last church when I started that September and I didn't fall in love. And that was the way the Spirit was telling me, your time is done here. And it was like, oh. Now, good news is, I, I will fall in love with you again. Don't, this is not me saying I'm resigning. But what I think it's really important here is, so Rick and Mary were, were, was with me um, at, um, at, uh, at, at Katie and... Um, Katie and um, Reed. It was coming to me because I was saying Katie and Mitch, but now that one already happened, so it was Katie and Reed. We have too many Katies. We need to have Katie 1, Katie 2. Katie, we, need to, we need to classify them. Rick and Mary were at me and Katie and Reed's wedding. Katie and Reed's wedding was beautiful. It was a beautiful day. It was gorgeous. We had lots of fun stuff to do all afternoon. Well, Rick and Mary and I were talking. You guys know Rick and Mary. And they told me they weren't going to be here, so I asked them about this. And you know what they said to me? They say, that's exactly right. 
And you know who else I bounced this idea off of? Martin Reimer. <clears throat> we don't have a lot of older people at our church. But I do know this. That Christianity, without the, this, this, this fresh love for God, becomes old, becomes tired, and becomes dry. And, and what we tend to do is white-knuckle it, grip it, the steering wheel, and going, okay, I can get through this. I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. But at some point in time, there's a lie that, that that doubt exists within our heart. And it doesn't matter whether you're baby, youth, or adult. You need to fall in love with God all over again. I need to fall in love with God all over again. Because if I don't fall in love with God over again, then what am I doing? If I don't give the Holy Spirit the opportunity to refresh me again, I become dry and lifeless in my spiritual walk. Now let me close. Let's go back to Hebrews, but a different passage, Hebrews chapter 6. Because the writer of Hebrews is going to come back to this topic again, but look what they're going to say. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need to do further instruction about baptisms, the laying of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Pause here. The reason why these are in different colors, this is what they think about our basic teaching. This is what they think, this is what he thinks basic teaching is in the church. Baptism, eternal judgment, resurrection, repenting, faith in God, laying on hands. He goes, that's not even the good stuff. This is the stuff you should know. I don't know a church I've been to that's even dealt with all this. And so, God willing, we will move forward together with understanding. Now, finally, now this is the part where you need to hear what I'm about to say. Because this, this, this is the oh snap end of it here, okay? Look what they say in verse 7 and 8. When the ground soaks up the falling rain, and I didn't time that with God, and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessings. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Here's what he's trying to say here. Maturity is not optional. It's salvific. Now, here's what I mean by that. The word salvific is fun to say, but here's what I mean. If you do not mature in your Christianity, you will not last in your Christianity. And if you will not last in your Christianity, you will not stay a Christ follower. The writer of Hebrews captures it perfectly here. and that Because he just told us what the basics of Christianity were. He talks about let's grow in our understanding, in our maturity. See, we've got baby Christians walking around our churches. We've got youth Christians walking around our churches. And no one is, is trying to say to them, this is not where you're meant to stay. But the writer of Hebrews says it really importantly. He says, listen, if a field does not produce, as opposed like the adult aspect of it, he uses the word useless. He then goes on to say it will be condemned and it will be burnt. We think about Christianity as this journey, rightfully so. We think of Christianity as, you know, I'm just going along and just, I'm just doing whatever. But what we don't think about Christianity is this process of internal, external development. And I just, the reason I wanted to end off with this verse is I just want you to understand something. Paul understands that the church in Corinth is in danger and they don't know it. The Western church is in danger and they don't know it. We've allowed baby Christians 
to dominate the, the conversation. We have allowed youth Christians to dominate the conversation. And the adults in the room aren't doing anything. What we're trying to say here, what Paul is trying to say here, what I'm trying to say to you this morning. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You are meant to grow in your faith. You're meant to develop. And again, if you're here this morning and you're like, I am dry. I feel that dryness. You got to allow the spirit to let you fall in love again. Unless you do so, unless you continue to grow, unless you continue to fall in love, until, unless you continue to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your spiritual walk, you'll just stop doing it. You'll just, you'll just stop. And this is why what Paul is saying is so important to the church in Corinth. Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Not going to make you do anything. I just want you to reflect. Baby, youth, adult. Without saying anything to anyone, if I was to ask you which category would you call yourself in, where would you place yourself? Where would you place yourself? Are you a baby Christian? Are you a youth Christian? Or are you an adult Christian? It's an interesting conversation. Maturity isn't optional, people. It's, it's not. The writer of Hebrews tells us that maturity is what God intends for us. It's, it's our time, our talents, and our treasure. It's, it's, it's living our lives in the kingdom of heaven because that's what God expects of us. And my encouragement and my challenge to you this morning, identify what stage of development you're in and grow the heck up. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have not left us as spiritual orphans, but you've given us the Holy Spirit. Spirit of the Most High God, I ask of you, I beg of you, speak to our hearts and minds. Speak deeply to us. Lord, I first pray for those who are in, are in a very dry spiritual place. Holy Spirit, help them to fall in love with you once again. In Jesus' name. Lord, for those who are baby Christians in the room this morning, Lord, let us recognize that stage and let us just, just be careful. Lord, for the youth Christians, Lord, I pray that they would also begin to grow as well. And Lord, for the adults in the room, let them reawaken, let them grow in their faith, Lord. So God, that they may pour out into the church, Lord. Lord, we ask all of these things by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.